0: The CPHI podcast series.
1: Hello and welcome to the CPHI podcast series. Today's episode I am especially excited about as we are celebrating International Women's Day. And to do this, I'm joined by the very accomplished Dr. Charlotte Fairweather as we discuss the extensive topic of women's health, the history, the controversies, and of course, the challenges. Charlotte Fairweather is the global medical innovation strategy lead for Bayer. She also worked as senior medical advisor for women's health within Bayer. She has over 10 years experience as a GP and sports medicine physician specialising in the female athlete. She has supported some of the country's top female athletes, Olympians and Paralympians. Charlotte is passionate about challenging the status quo in women's health and driving better health outcomes for women, a passion that I found infectious in our following conversation. Thank you, Charlotte, for joining me today. Very much looking forward to this conversation. I'm going to kick things off with a nice big question. So, historically, how and why has women's health been considered a low priority, or rather, not even really considered at all in developing pharmaceuticals?
0: Thanks, Lucy. You're right. This is a big question to start off with. So, I'd say historically, women's health has often been considered a very low priority for a number of reasons. So we could probably break it down into social, cultural, economic factors. But crucially, if we really go back, the lack of representation of women in clinical trials has meant that pharmaceutical companies just haven't had the data available related to how women will respond to their medicines. And I think if we go back a little bit, a lot of that will stem from concerns about potential harm to a fetus, effects of menstrual cycle and how that may affect a study results lack of data on safety and efficacy on you know drugs in women means that as a result there's then a lack of investment in developing the drugs specifically for women's health because it is perhaps more expensive to run a trial that's bespoke to women's health because of those safety concerns or those potential concerns and then i think if we maybe take a step back and just look at societal attitudes and the biases We still have, to a certain extent, day to day, but certainly if we go back a few years, we're we're worse. These biases regarding women's health and the taboos and stigma related to women's health conditions, I'm here doing air quotes because some of them aren't specifically women's health conditions. They're conditions that affect men as well, but are perhaps not seen that way when we compare to our male counterparts. I think that plays a big part in it, and somehow women are stigmatized for having a health condition um, that perhaps you know men aren't, and maybe we take something as simple as cardiovascular disease, you know, heart attacks. If you want, they affect women as well, but everything revolves around looking at men when we when we talk about those kind of diseases, and as a result, often you know I can say this from a clinician's perspective, you have to be really um, sure that you don't forget about these things when you have a female patient sat in front of you. So I think from a pharmaceutical company's perspective, that lack of investment in developing drugs specifically from women's health has probably resulted from a historical fear of the impact that it could have on pregnancy or long-term fertility, menstrual health, and therefore everything's focused much more on, on the men.
1: What are some of the biggest issues in women's health today that need highlighting and why?
0: Well, another great question this is a huge list. I mean, where do we start? Okay, let's start with a big one. I, I think a huge issue that is still not spoken about is maternal mortality. And that is still a you know, massive, massive problem. It, it certainly is if we go to parts of the world where they don't have such good access to health. I think Sierra Leone has got the highest maternal mortality rate. But if we if we take a step back and look at you know developed countries, the United States still has one of the highest maternal mortality rates. And I think that's that's quite shocking for many people. And in particular, we know that, you know, black ethnic minority women are disproportionately affected by maternal mortality. They're three to four times more likely to die from pregnancy related complications than, than white women. And that's a horrendous statistic and somehow gets lost even in 2023. So maternal mortality for me is a, is a massive issue that needs, needs some focus. And then I suppose moving on from that reproductive health. You know, access to contraception, safe and legal abortion. That's a provocative subject I appreciate. Comprehensive sex education. And that's a subject that is very close to my heart. I I feel really strongly that not just in, you know, other parts of the world where we can say, well, that doesn't affect us here in the UK, but in the UK, we still do not have a great comprehensive sex education set up for children within the schooling system. And I think it's so important. And that, of course, without that, will lead to unintended pregnancies, unsafe abortions, increased risk of sexually transmitted diseases, and all the taboo that comes with that because young people haven't had the, the education that they need. And then if you don't provide the good access to the safe and legal abortions, you know, people end up in a, in, in a place that they don't want to be in or they never plan to be in. Yeah, reproductive health, again, I think still has a lot of work. And I suppose you know, an offshoot from that would then be, and this is, I know, a very hot topic at the moment, but mental health. You know, women are at increased risk of developing mental health conditions such as, you know, depression, anxiety, eating disorders, etc., and often as a result of maybe gender-based violence, domestic abuse, trauma, sexual trauma, and they are again taboo subjects. And there's it's difficult to access mental health services, and they're really hugely underfunded. So you know, those for me are probably the three top. I suppose if we just go to more general medicine, you know, autoimmune diseases disproportionately affect women and even that to me as a as a as a doctor i wasn't aware of that 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 didn't come through in in very clearly in teaching and that's something you pick up as a clinician but i don't think is you know I, i don't know how aware the public are of of that and despite that so we know that autoimmune diseases are disproportionately affect women and even knowing that research on autoimmune diseases historically focuses on men So, you know, we're then in that gender bias again, we're back into that vicious cycle of delayed diagnosis and treatment for women, because the research has been focused on men, even though we know that women are more likely to be affected by those diseases. Mm. Although we've come a long way, and I don't want to underplay how far we've come, there is still a long, long way to go. And I think it's crucial to focus on some of those if we want to continue to improve the health and well-being of women across the world not yeah just in the
1: UK. absolutely like so yeah especially across the world because that's where there's so many disparities that we can see yeah so it's really it is a, really is a global issue absolutely right so in the last few decades as you mentioned we have come a long way and there's definitely been a rise in advocacy for women's health and there's more light been shed on issues relating to medical misogyny especially around some of those more controversial subjects, not necessarily saying that there's been progress in all of those aspects. How has this affected drug development in recent years? Have you seen that this has improved along with that raising in awareness?
0: Yeah, so that's an an interesting question. The bottom line is, yes, it has affected drug development. I would say that you know, unless you've been living under a rock, (laughs) pharmaceutical companies certainly haven't. And they are certainly more aware of the need to consider women's health issues in clinical trials and drug development. And actually, you know, the FDA now require drug developers to include women in clinical trials unless there is a clear scientific reason not to. So, you know, that's a major step because it's recognising this is really important. 50% of the population are female, so they need to be included. I mean, that, that, will certainly have led to better understanding of how drugs affect women's bodies specifically, and therefore will have helped to improve the safety and efficacy of drugs for women. You know, I don't know the figures, but there's definitely increase in funding for research into women's health issues. The FDA required drug developers to include women in clinical trials unless there's a very clear scientific reason not to. And as a consequence, this has led to far better understanding of how drugs affect Women's bodies, and therefore, we have improved safety and efficacy data on drugs for women. There's increased funding for research into women's health issues, and that includes very specific things like breast cancer, ovarian cancer, etc. And um, you know, definitely been a shift in contraceptive development, and that's come a long way in actually quite a short amount of time. When we think of the bigger picture. it's not that long ago. It'll seem like a very long time ago for you because you're so young, but it's not that long, long ago that we didn't have the contraceptive pill really. Um, you know, that's a huge shift. So if we think about the last 50 years, contraception's come a long way and there's a huge choice now. I'd, I, you know, I'd still say that, that there needs to be more and access needs to be better, but we've got hormonal, we've got non hormonal, we've got intrauterine devices, we've got pills, we've got barrier methods. There's all sorts of potential options available there. So there's definitely been a shift in recent years. And I think that's, that can only get better. Now we've opened the floodgates, and people recognise that this is an important area that they need to focus on. I think it it will be self-perpetuating. I'm optimistic it will be um, self-perpetuating. so, yeah, I suppose watch this space. We'll have a conversation again in five or ten years' time and see, see where we're at yeah, then. Yeah, absolutely.
1: Yeah, I'm, I think there's um, there's a lot to um, to be discovered uh, in terms of contraception and things like that. I feel like there's going to be so many many medicines and things that come out in the future, and just um, flipping that on its head a bit would be really interesting. I'm very much looking forward to see how that develops um, particularly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Okay, well, great. That's um, so uh, you touched on it there, actually, in terms of if we're talking about clinical trials and also even in the news recently, there's been developments in terms of in the US bringing legislation to have a requirement for better representation of women and people of colour in clinical trials. Could you talk me through some of the challenges in gaining representation um, for for women, women of different races and um, pregnant women as well in clinical trials and why, why that, that representation is so important?
0: This is quite a difficult question really, and it's really multifaceted. You know, we spoke earlier about historically, women have been excluded, you know, period, <laughs> not just across different races. And now we're a little bit further down the line. But yeah, absolutely, we've still got very specific groups that are clearly highly underrepresented um, within clinical trials. And I, I don't think there's one clear reason for that, um, but it obviously has an impact because then we don't have, if we don't have that representation within the clinical trials, then we don't have that safety and efficacy data for the drugs in these groups. So then when the drug comes to market as the clinician, you're utilizing it in this group of women um, and you hope that it affects them in the way it should do. But we don't actually have that data. So we can collect that in what's called real-world evidence collection. You know, after a drug is on the market, you could we, we continue, we're always collecting the data. So it's not that we never have the data, it's just that when a drug is launched, we don't necessarily have that there and then for a brand new product. You I know, mean, why is that? So recruiting women is a challenge, and that's certainly a challenge for researchers when they're creating their clinical trial. And it may be that, you know... If we're talking about cultural groups or ethnic minorities, is there a language barrier? Are there logistical challenges? You know, if women have children and they're at home, is there a logistical challenge? You know, very simply breaking it down to that with childcare and transportation, is there potential distrust in the medical community? Perhaps because historically they haven't felt that they've had that support. So why should they offer themselves? into research. It's also, you know, the pregnant women, that is a huge challenge, as I'm sure anyone can imagine, because to get informed consent, or to get it consent from a a pregnant woman is a challenge because you're asking them to do something that can potentially affect the fetus. So we actually don't do trials on pregnant women, but we obviously do give them medicines. So, you know, this is a real juxtaposition. And there are pregnancy-specific considerations that we need to take into consideration and if we do want to have these groups of women within clinical trials it can add cost to the clinical trial so as a pharma company and if you know i'm paying for the research is it worth it if i can do the trial without them in and then get the drug to market and then we'll collate that data in real world evidence later down the line i'm not saying that's the right thing to do but you know i can see that juxtaposition it's it's really difficult and i'm not sure what the answer is, or, or how we breach that hurdle, if you like. But I think maybe it's breaking it down and looking at, you know, there, there shouldn't really be an excuse for a language barrier issue nowadays. There's, there's technology to assist us, there's ways of getting around that. Access to digital support, I think, allows us to be able to offer better education, perhaps, on what a trial is about. But still, reaching out to those areas of society is is perhaps more difficult and just by the nature of a clinical trial you know is there an argument that you get some level of bias in who you're getting in the trial because of the way it's set up and we, you know we are aware of that when we when you look at a trial and you break it down you're aware of those biases but there's definitely still huge swathes of the population who are who are neglected from trials and this is a difficult one because I, I want to give you an answer or a you know a way to fix it but I, I don't know what the answer is for this I think we have to do it one step at a time and Perhaps with the increased funding that's coming into women's health, the cost piece will be taken out of the equation or will be mm. less of an issue as we move forward. Um, but the safety thing yeah. is still there.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it, like you say, it's such a multifaceted issue, really. It's it's no um, one size fits all answer either. So, yeah, it's, it's definitely a tricky one. <laughs> but like something that, you know, it has to be it has to be talked about so that, yeah, those options can be considered. Mm, Absolutely. So the theme for this year's International Women's Day is embrace equity. And I think this is quite applicable to what we're talking about today, what we've just talked about in the clinical trials and in the global access to medicine. How do you think that we can make that that access um, more equitable um, for people all over the world?
0: Gosh, globally, this is a complex issue. <laughs> definitely, yeah, another big question that definitely requires another multifaceted approach, I think. I mean, yeah, bottom line, probably money, increased funding. There needs to be increased funding for the research. We've just said that. And specifically for those conditions that disproportionately affect mm. women. And then you know, if we can get that, that will help to develop new treatments, therapies that are specifically tailored to women's health needs. And I think that's, if we could do that, that ticks a box. Um we, you know, we, we then probably need to look at addressing systemic inequalities. Um, so in certain parts of the world, women do face these inequalities, though poverty, lack of education, limited access to healthcare. So addressing those underlying issues would be critical, I think, to improving women's access to medicine in those areas. You know, and I've just said it, education and awareness, I've we've said it, you know, earlier on, I don't think you can undervalue that. You, you just really cannot undervalue that education and awareness if we educate women about their health and that includes prevention so not just when to turn up but prevention how to look after themselves early detection of disease all of those things will help to improve their health outcomes and that means making them aware of availability to to things like uh, i don't know vaccinations cancer screening family planning um yeah really really important things that And not even in even in this country, they're they're not taught in school. You have to find them out somehow. Um, And then if you go to more deprived countries where there is lack of good healthcare access, it's arguably I don't want to say even more important, but but well, maybe it is. It's just as important because then they really need to understand how to look after themselves and give people health autonomy. I'm a big fan of empowering people to have autonomy. To look after themselves as best they can. Medicine should be to support somebody to optimise their health. It shouldn't be about firefighting all of the time. And I think that has got lost, even in well, actually very much in this you know in this country in the UK. With we have a national health service that you know we can all appreciate is a breaking point, but it's firefighting all of the time. And I think if we can just try to switch the mindset of people to really understand. they need to do to improve their own health and have some autonomy and take that responsibility actually that's really empowering but that needs education You, you don't you need somebody to teach you how to do that in the same way that you get taught you know home economics how to cook how to sew all of these things that we used to get taught in you know way back so for me that's a really really big part and then you know we can't again back to the financials but Increased access to affordable medicines. People need to be able to afford the medicines. Um, and I know again, you know, we're fortunate we're sitting in the UK, where most of us have access to free healthcare because we have such a fantastic healthcare system. Um, but that's certainly not the case in many, many other countries. So making medicines more affordable, particularly in low and middle-income countries, will help increase the access to medicines. So that's a bigger topic, but Putting in measures such as price controls and, you know, generic availability, public-private partnerships, etc., helps massively. And you know, I, I know pharmaceutical companies support lower-middle-income countries. It, you know, it's part of what they do. Most many of them. Um, so it's it's not forgotten, but there's still a long way to go. Um, and there's a big political element to that, I suppose. So I think that you know those are those are probably the the big ones for me. And I would say, you know, if I had to pick top ones. It's probably the education and awareness closely followed by the funding, but the one that's maybe more easily fixed and doesn't cost as much as education. You know, we, we can provide education. We can make it available through channels that people can access if they want to find yeah,
1: it. Yeah, I completely agree. So definitely
0: work to be done there. Well, I mean, a, gr- a great example, actually, and we're seeing it massively in the UK, far more than any other country, is um you know, is education and awareness of things like you know, menopause It's massive over here, isn't it? Every celebrity is talking about it. I mean, you said you're twenty seven, so it's a long way off for you. But my point is I suppose it only takes one or two people to start talking, and then that increases the awareness. And then it's very difficult for people to pretend that it's not a problem and it's not there. And then they have to take an action, or they have to be seen to be taking an action. And I think that's all it takes. It's to raise the topic. And from that, you create a springboard for people to say, okay, well, what are you going to do about it? And it doesn't have to be much. It's not rocket science. It doesn't have to be a huge thing. It can sometimes be as much as just recognising that it is a thing. It is a an issue or it is something that affects certain people. That's enough. That was just a, an example that comes in that's, I suppose, quite topical at the moment.
1: Yeah, no, that's brilliant. Yeah, I think, again, so many, so many different things that we could go into and so many different examples about global access and things even even taking into account in uh, the pandemic when i know there was some there was such a difference in countries in terms of just testing for covid in the uk we had free tests for well over a year i think it was and that was absolutely not the case in so many countries and that just contributed to a lot of um, a lot of the spread and all of these things so yeah like you say it's just um It's really the affordability of medicines and things like that is, yeah.
0: And actually access, you've raised a really good point because access to medicines in the pandemic was really difficult. Talking about women's health, access to contraceptive services was really difficult. They shut all the contraceptive services in the pandemic. So women couldn't access. And I think that shows that we still have a very long way to go before we have health equality. Mm. And, you know, we don't like to think that this is going on, but there are people for whom sex is a job and sex workers rely on these services to keep them safe and i think although it's not something that many of us want to see or think about or talk about it is vitally important to that group of women that those services are there as a way of them keeping themselves safe and then on completely the opposite end of the spectrum there were people who were in the pandemic saying well actually we want to start a family and they wanted their intrauterine device removed and they couldn't find anyone to remove it. So it wasn't, they actually wanted to reverse their contraception because they saw this as an opportunity to start a family and say, well, this is the right time for us." So it affected every group of women across the board. It's not the case now. Everything's back open. But I know a lot of people were very infuriated by that decision and just made women feel like effectively were saying, you're not the priority right now, which I think was you know, not a great message.
1: You mentioned empowering women and girls and at Bayer, I know that that's part of your plan to achieve this as part of the UN's Sustainable Development Goals, which are brilliant set goals. <laughs> but yes, if we're talking specifically about Bayer, how are you proposing to do this?
0: There are so many great things actually in this space that gets lost and we don't really, we don't speak about it enough really. So I mean, one of the big things that Bayer committed to is something called the 100 Million Women Project, which was a pledge to provide contraception, contraceptive services to 100 million women in low and middle-income countries, and we heard today that as of end of last year, we were at 44 million. So not quite halfway, but that's a significant number of women to provide um, mm. contraception to. And Bayer's has partnered with uh, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, the German Red Cross, to provide emergency support and access to women in low-income countries so they have access to contraceptive service family planning education um, which is so invaluable and it, you know it's that education piece again you know, we saw some of our colleagues going out to teach people how to fit contraception and you know they should, the, the saying of give a will feed a family today but they'll be hungry tomorrow Teach a man to fish, well, he'll feed himself and his community for a lifetime, and and that's the premise behind it. It's this isn't just about providing you know, a load of contraceptive devices or pills to a country and saying there you go, and off we go back to our, you know our comfy offices. It's about actually teaching and setting up the infrastructure and providing the yeah the the the, the foundations for them to continue to provide that, that service um, and take that to places where they historically haven't had good access. Um, and I think that's that's really powerful because that's empowering those women. Teaching some of those women will be the people who fit contraception, who talk to the younger girls, and then it becomes something that is self-perpetuating for years and years to come. So re- yeah, a really, really nice. And I know they've um, invested over 400 million euros into women's health and projects within that that arena. it's the piece of the job that gives you a really nice feeling that actually
1: we are able to make Mm. a bit of a difference Mm. yeah that's great that is yeah i mean it's a great feeling (laughs) um so you uh you mentioned a little bit there about like the infrastructure to be able to do that and in pharma at the minute we're we're looking forward to having the dawn of pharma 4.0 and building in things like digital innovation a lot more um, making them a lot more intrinsic to how we process things in pharma So how can things like that digital innovation improve the things that we've talked about like the awareness and education and, and on a practical level the actual development of medicines for women
0: yeah this is this is a really great question as well actually because this brings us back having I mean, just been speaking about you know lower middle income countries where perhaps We're not quite at that you know, the the digital what's the word I'm looking for? Accessibility to digital devices isn't necessarily um, as easy. We come back a little bit. And certainly for all of us, I mean we're recording this podcast, I'm not sat next to you, we're doing it all over tech, although I failed to be able to get my camera to work so you can't see me. However, (laughs) there is a huge potential for improvement to improve awareness and um, education and therefore the development of medicine for women. And the awareness piece, I think, is a really, really big piece for me. So just thinking of how people access medical information nowadays, regardless of what, you know, whether we're talking actually about women's health specific, just how people access information has completely changed over recent years. And actually, just since 2020, when the pandemic hit, there's been another shift, a very rapid shift, and I think because people didn't have access to their their GP, they couldn't readily pick up the phone when they had a problem, they had to suddenly search for information, ask peers. or But Dr. Google came into its own. And I don't want to dismiss that. It's really important, as I've said before, for people to have that ability to have autonomy over their health. But the danger is that there is a lot of misinformation if you don't know what you're looking for. And Google's great, but it does give you a list of things and you have to filter through it. So I think there is a real opportunity here to be able to provide really high quality, evidence-based education, disease awareness on platforms in places where people get their information, which may be Instagram, maybe Facebook, it may be a webinar, podcasts, you know, <laughs> you know all sorts of places that people now get good quality information is available. So there is this massive leap and the opportunity for, pharma who have, you know, regardless of what people think, have access to phenomenal evidence-based information that they can share and provide and huge databases of stuff. And they also have hundreds of experts in their fields working with them who can create educational platforms in lay terms, You know, it doesn't have to be rocket science. So I think making the information available, making people aware of diseases, Things that maybe don't get spoken about. You know, We spoke about uh, women's health issues often being stigmatized or tabooed. And then earlier we talked about you know menopause now being everywhere. It's all over social media. It is everywhere. And it's the same, I think, with menstrual health issues. You know, if you're a, a young girl and you don't want to talk to your teacher or your friends or your, your mom about this stuff because you're embarrassed, you can find it. And you should be able to find the right information so you can actually educate yourself and then you can have the conversations later when you feel ready. So I think that that is really so important. If we think about other digital platforms or digital um, devices, things like Apple Watches or Fitbits, wearables, now I see more and more the people developing very specific women's health ones for women that have menstrual health you know, cycle trackers on them, um, fertility trackers. I think one of the highest downloaded apps Most of the highest downloaded apps are women's health specific. That space is absolutely booming. Femtech is taking off, which just goes to show that women are reaching out for this and possibly because they've not had access to it before. They're suddenly saying, we've been desperately wanting this education, this ability to understand what we need to know about our bodies and how we can optimise ourselves and do the best by ourselves. And suddenly there's an opportunity to get it. So, you know, I started to see when I was still working in clinical practice, more and more women coming in with the readouts from the wearables and wanting to understand it. And I think that's great that they're taking that and saying, yeah, I've got some of this information, I don't fully understand it, but we can have a dialogue about that. And I think that's half the battle, that people are not sitting at home and not doing anything or not taking a a next step. And then I guess the next movement on from that would be, you know, we can't get away from... OpenAI, AI, chat GPT, and, and all of the things that are suddenly leaping forward. But there is a huge space, perhaps for personalized medicine, you know, an offering for a very bespoke service for an individual woman's needs. And you're starting to see that coming through that people are recognizing that we're not all the same, it's not one size fits all. And there is this definite need to really individualize things. And I, I see that happening in the not too distant Future. And you know what? Perhaps going back to one of your earlier questions, which was about recruitment into clinical trials, perhaps digital tools, social media platforms, this ability to reach people might just help to solve that recruitment issue because women will be able to see it. People could advertise their clinical trials, and we, we already do, to make it more accessible to people who perhaps haven't had that access before. So I think, you know, it's a really important step. I think we have to be cautious because there is still digital poverty, and not everybody has access to an iPhone. iPhones are really expensive; not everyone has access to a smartphone or an Apple Watch, and so we can't put all our eggs in that basket. We we have to make sure that there is access for all, as we've as we've said. Um, but it definitely provides an opportunity, and as we move forward, you know, everyone now is digitally native. I, I you know I, I see that with my children who are very little, and they sort of instinctively know how to swipe on a touchscreen it's it's just innate now it's part of life Um, so we need to move at the same speed and be able to use that opportunity to do right by I say our patients in inverted commas women are not you know patients but by people who are accessing medicine and want access to that that health education yeah so that it's an area that particularly excites me obviously, I mean, <laughs> medical innovation. <laughs> um, but, but I think, you know, when you look at something like women's health that's been playing catch up for so many years, this offers such a brilliant springboard to leap forward and really bring us up in line with mm. where we should be. Yeah,
1: absolutely. Yeah, I completely agree. There's, it, like you said, you have to be careful in terms of who don't make that gap bigger in terms of the access. But overall, it's definitely going to be something that can help massively and yeah I personally have all the apps and I love them (laughs) Um, yeah I think they're brilliant yeah so that's good Uh, so kind of building on from that maybe not necessarily speaking digitally but what advancements would you like to see maybe like specific medicines perhaps or specific areas of medicine what advancements would you like to see in the next couple of years like imminent things that we should be looking out for
0: I think we've said it over and over again that there's been loads of progress in recent years. There's still so much we don't know about women's health. You know, we've got years and years and years of data that's very male specific. So we're not just going to catch that up in a couple of years, but we can make a dent and we can recognise that there are gaps and we've had blind spots. I think you know, in the reproductive medicine space and thinking about sustainability and what people want now, I think there's a definite gap in the non hormonal contraceptive offering. It's certainly something I started to hear working, you know, when I was working in clinical medicine in women's health and running a women's health clinic. That actually, women are asking, you know, they want to know, well, what are my options? I don't want to take hormones, or I've I've tried and I didn't get on with it. What are my options? And that is still a very limited space. There are not great options in that space still. And that shouldn't be the case. It really shouldn't be the case. So I think there's a gap there. Um, and I think now that people are starting to ask for it, it puts pressure on the pharmaceutical companies or somebody, somebody to answer and say, okay, we need to invest in this. You know, there's an unmet need there. Well, there is an unmet need there because the current offerings are not perhaps acceptable to all women because of the potential side effects or, you know, if you limit somebody to barrier methods, there's a bigger room for error and a bigger room for an unplanned pregnancy. And obviously that is not what the intention is. So in 2023, we shouldn't be in a position where if you don't want a hormonal contraception, you're accepting something that is perhaps not as good, um, not as efficacious, or something that can give you heavier bleeding and I, I you know I, I don't think choosing between those two options that shouldn't be where we're at for a woman who doesn't want to have hormonal contraception and I think maybe the other thing is just coming back to that increased awareness of women's health issues um, and pe- perhaps you know the mental health piece really trying to break down some of those stigmas and think about what women need specifically so, you know, again, we've spoken about menopause. That's maybe in the UK not feeling like such a taboo topic. But when I speak to my colleagues in some of, you know, in in other parts of the world, it's still very unspoken about. And so that will take a while to shift and change. But again, you know, there's there's space there. We're in the same boat from, you know, you either have hormones or you don't have hormones. And then you've got a group of women who have gone through breast cancer treatment. There's areas of medicine where we still have big gaps for women. And I think we need to shift the focus away from very much the aesthetics, which is where the market has focused on for women. You know, all the money gets put into dermatological products, fillers, et cetera, et cetera. That's got tons of investment. I'm not saying there's not a market. There is a market there, but it, what's the message it's giving? And can we start to shift that message and say, yeah, uh, actually, the investment should be really looking at other areas of women's health that affect all women at some point in their life, or may affect all women at some point in their life. And like I said before, 50% of the population are female. So this is not a small group of people. This is a significant percentage of the population. Yeah. So overall, we need continued research. There's and advocacy meaning people to advocate for this and invest in women's health and i think if we can do that we can work towards ensuring that women will get the best possible care and that treatments are safe and effective equitable and available for everybody
1: so that would be the dream if i could have a wish that sounds like a good wish to me thank you again to charlotte for joining me in this international women's day episode of the CPHI podcast series on such an important topic one which I'm sure we could have talked about for hours. Thank you all so much for listening and have a happy International Women's Day. Thank you for
0: listening to the CPHI podcast series. For pharmaceutical news, webinars, events and more, visit cphionline.com.